0: Trees, Lift Health for All, is a podcast from the Center for Health Equity Transformation, gathering voices in research and communities around Chicago. Conversations and interviews will discuss the importance of achieving health equity, highlighting health disparities, and exploring innovative ways to improve health for all.
1: Hi, welcome to Skinny Trees. This is Araceli. Today we are sitting with Dr. Fernando de Mayo and Dr. Raj Shah. Together, they are co-directors of the Center for Community Health Equity, a collaboration between DePaul and Rush University founded in 2015. They are also co-editors of the book, Community Health Equity, a Chicago Reader, released in April 2019. Dr. DeMaio is an Associate Professor of Sociology at DePaul University, and Dr. Shaw is an Associate Professor in the Department of Family Medicine and the Rush Alzheimer's Disease Center at Rush University Medical Center. They both serve as co-directors of the Center for Community Health Equity. Welcome to the Skinny Trees Podcast.
2: Thanks for having us.
1: Welcome, and I... Just to start off with, we have a few iceberg questions. How has your ancestral history affected your upbringing and the work you do today?
3: Yeah, so I'm uh, of Indian origin, uh, but actually grew up in East Africa, in Tanzania. And I, uh, my great-grandfather had gone to Zanzibar and then we were there for three generations and then moved uh, to Chicago where my aunt was uh, when in 1977. Hmm. Um, so I it it's this weird dynamic of I recognize myself as being Indian, um, but sort of not being Indian at the same time, and being uh, part of the United States and uh, part of other countries where my relatives are throughout. Um, hmm. So uh, it's a mixed and a fluid, I guess, environment and relationship over time.
2: Yeah. And on that level, I think we have many things in common. I I was born in Argentina, and I lived there until I was eight years old, and then we moved to Canada, and I um, lived for five years in England, so I've been lucky to float around a little bit. But certainly my roots are in Argentina, and those roots have impacted my work. Argentina is a country that has major booms and busts in terms of economics and and politics, and that has surely driven um, some of my interest in social inequality.
3: Yeah. So if you'd had to ask me what home is, home is in the Chicagoland area, Naperville, where I live right now. Um, and I don't think I would call anything else home. But it's, it's, uh, it's, a weird, it's a unique type of relationship with home where it's also, I feel, part of me is in East Africa, even though I don't recall uh, mm-hmm. being there since I was seven years old. Or, and part of me is in England and in Australia and in India. So
1: mm-hmm.
3: uh, there's these uh, weird dynamics of what home means.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing. So for this next part, we're going to have Rabia just jump into some questions.
4: Thank you, RSL. I appreciate that. Uh, so my name is Rabia, and uh, I'm a clinical research associate here at the Center for Health Equity Transformation. Um, we just came back from a talk um, that you both gave um, as part of the uh, Chat Chat series um, highlighting um, the challenges and approaches to health equity. And so um, we're now in our uh, studio in the at the Center for Health Equity Transformation and we had the pleasure to meet with you both and have a little bit of discussion. Earlier this year, you came out with um, your book, uh, Community Health Equity, A Chicago Reader. Can you tell us a little more about the book itself for our listeners who have not heard about it before?
2: Sure. Um, for us, it was a, a really important project that we took on early on in our partnership. It was part of the way of doing our homework as Raj mentioned, neither, neither one of us is from Chicago originally, and so this was the way of, of learning about what had happened in the city, what research has been taking place. The great fear that we have is replicating the wheel, right? And that would be a dead end and a waste of our time. So we wanted to, to build on and acknowledge the great work that's already been published. In many ways, it was a, a fun book to put together and a, and a difficult book to put together. Right? It's hard to summarize the complexity of a city, Um, in one volume. We could have easily doubled the size of this, but of course no publisher would want Mm a 1,000-page book, and no reader would get through it. So one of the challenges was to find the 30 or so sources that we thought uh, were indicative, right, that that gave us a sense of the different threads of the conversation that Chicago has been involved in. In the end, we decided on five sections for the book. Um, Part one is a divided city. Part two is the health gap. Part three details the healthcare system in a section called uh, separate and unequal health care. Part four is community matters. And the fifth part, probably the most important part, is called taking action.
3: Yeah, and I think in, in many ways, even growing up in the Chicagoland area um, and doing all of my schooling and training here, uh, we don't truly really understand all the aspects of the city and how it works and what was forming it and the relationships. Uh, for many of us that live in some of the suburbs, coming to the city meant the downtown area. Um, and you wouldn't quite know why it was that your parents would always tell you to not go through certain streets or neighborhoods or, uh, or you know, take the expressway instead of locals in certain areas. Uh, and then one of my experiences early on in, um, in my research career was to be able to do home visits on the south side for a project on aging called the Chicago Health and Aging Project. And driving in neighborhoods like Washington Heights and Beverly and uh, others from a middle class socioeconomic uh, grouping on the south side with a mixed race uh, uh, population, uh, it was really eye opening to me Uh, there were some beautiful places in the city that was just not known. and so I was hoping by doing the book, apart from the homework side, was to be able to just understand what were the patterns driving and how were people thinking about these patterns over time um, and learning a little bit more about the history. There's so many people that come to Chicago as part of their education or uh, experience, um, but never really get to know the city, get to just even they get to see kind of facades of the city um, and, uh, and, and have sort of uh, biases that come through about what is the city and what it means to them. And this was a way to break that down and to offer some glimpses into how people have been looking at this over uh, almost 100 years. Uh, See see that things sometimes don't change, um, but also see that things do change um, and that you can adapt and make a difference. Uh, Sometimes we get caught into feeling like, well, it's always been this way. And when you look at history, you sometimes find, well, um, some things may be similar, but there's also been changes and progress and adjustments in a dynamic world we live in with about 2.7 million people in the space of the city of Chicago.
2: Mm -hmm. That sense of history was really important uh, for the book, right? In public health, we're often probably too focused on the newest survey, the newest study, the newest thing that comes out. And so maybe the book is also an attempt to rescue the value of, of older data and older questions and older publications. One of my
4: questions I was going to ask, I think you just answered it there, was about the importance of taking into consideration such that historical time frame. I mean, the gap between these publications uh, um, is like eighty nine nine years at the most in mm-hmm. terms of um, all this uh, information that has, research has been done and And you're exactly right sometimes we do we do search for the latest and we don't even include things that are 10 years plus because we think they're outdated or obsolete Mm. um could you talk a little more about the um importance of uh the chronological order i I noticed in each of the chapters you do present it in that in such like where it goes from past to present Mm. um was that a conscious decision in terms of um versus sort of just opposing different time points or um could you talk a little more about that
2: yeah the the time element is really important. I think there's great value in, in reading stuff from the 1920s and 1930s and seeing the echoes, both in terms of the findings that they may have published, but also in the language that they used. Um, you know, there's an, an amazing overlay you can do with um, 1920s work on tuberculosis and newer work on breast cancer. The figures are much the same. and showed a persistently high bar for one group and a declining bar for another group. The disease was different, the context was different, but the fundamental pattern of inequality growing over time as new medical advances and new um, developments occurred, um, repeated. And so I think the best way to bring that out was to have some kind of chronological order to to the text.
3: Yeah, it, it's not, uh, we struggled a little bit with it because um, the initial idea was to be truly chronological in the entire book, right? Like the beginning, you'd start 100 years ago, and you'd work your way through every chapter, and you get to modern day. Um, but the way the chapters are divided is chronological within the section and the chapter, but then there's overlap between the chapters and the time points. Um, because they're covering slightly you know, uh, different topics, but they're complementary and interactive. So... The same work that was happening in the community and our understanding of um, community-based parameters that might be influencing health uh, can't just be understood in isolation by itself without also understanding some of the access points around health and one of the other chapters or um, some of the actions that people were taking in the community. So so there's a little bit of that more intermingling. The chapters itself, for ease of reading, we try to keep it chronological. But then between chapters, there's that overlap of time.
4: In the book, you also include, uh, you present um, a definition of structural violence. Uh, and I'm quoting here from the book uh, as social arrangements that put individuals and populations in harm's way. Can you tell us more about this phenomenon and why you chose it as your central focus in the book?
2: Yeah, for for me, structural violence has been a a very important concept, one well, that's organized my thinking, not for this book, not just for this project, but, but throughout my academic career. Um, it's been popularized in recent years with the great work of Paul Farmer, though of course he didn't come up with the concept. Of, uh, the, the origins are in, in uh, the writings of, of a man named Johann Galtung in the 1960s, but over time the concept has taken on, I think, a new life in health equity work, and I think it's really valuable to us because it's, it's holistic. It points a, a finger at the true root causes of social and political arrangements, and it emph- emphasizes that the harm that these uh, arrangements cause, and that can be expressed in low birth weight indicators, asthma indicators, breast cancer, and a host, um, a, a range of other conditions. So it's very flexible in that way. There's also lots of debates about the concept, though. We can't measure it. We don't have a, a scale, a metric of structural violence like we have for, say, income inequality or even economic development um, so it, it's an interesting concept but it also pulls that our thinking in, in very important ways
3: yeah I think that's been uh, the nice part about being editors not only the two of us involved in the book but then also John Mazio is the director of uh, the master's of public health program at DePaul and David Ansel a clinician and then um, a sponsor of so much work uh, to try to improve health equity in the city over time um, and it was it was really we, we did struggle I mean, I mean it didn't come naturally like we all agreed that that was the key theme or the idea because we, we have different perspectives and uh, different experiences and what these terms mean and um, uh, you know it's a concept uh, and and for me as sort of uh, uh, thinking through it in, in sort of the, the standard scientific method i I do echo what Fernando was talking about, is that it, it provides maybe a theory or understanding of a phenomenon we're seeing, but it really does open the door to requiring more evaluation of, of the meaning of that term, how it's measured, how we understand its properties, uh, so that we can make predictions in a better way over time. As it is, it truly a causal phenomenon, or is it a descriptive phenomenon, or is it a... Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, just a, a biomarker or another marker of what something underlying is causing these changes. Uh, but I do recognize, and I think it's really important with the models that the WHO has created and some of the newer versions of sort of the theory about why health inequities are generated, uh, that we do have to start with that social construct, that a lot of these things are driven by how we develop policies and procedures and act on them. Um, at, at multiple levels, I wouldn't just say it's always governmental level that brings off you know uh, us as citizens together and their impact, but even within our organizations um, within every institution we work with i, I think we have to it's just made me more aware of putting that lens in, in how I look at the world around me and thinking about well you know that outcome or that sort of uh quote, harm that we are maybe observing, um, what is driving it? Is it is it just personality? Is it, it's usually something deeper, right? It's some unwritten rules or unwritten ways of kind of thinking about the world and how it's organized that if we can only shed light on it, maybe we can find better solutions that make our, our uh, places more equitable
4: for all. What has been the reaction to the book so far?
2: Been Very positive. Um, we've had <clears throat> um, many invitations to come speak at different groups from, from your institution, your, your family health centers. Just last week I was there, um, many others. I think people see value in that historical perspective. Um, they see value in a, in a book that wasn't focused on a particular disease. So this easily could have been a cancer book or a diabetes book or an asthma book. It, by design, it, it hops around to different outcomes. And that is often, um, I think, refreshing for people to see. It gets them out of their particular boxes.
3: Yeah, and I, I, again, I think our hope is that it's a platform. It doesn't stay by itself as a book. It's one concentration of information in a particular by a particular group in a particular point in time. But it's led to these offshoot projects that I think have been really helpful in adding more of a flavor of what's happening in the city, whether it be um, this idea of voices of health equity, where we interview some of the key researchers in the Chicago area and about their perspectives of what generated that writing or community members that have lived through some of these solutions and designing it for their communities to share their personal stories and add a different flavor qualitatively Mm -hmm. about what these things mean, um, uh, so that it's not just us interpreting that voice, but there's other people interpreting what is being written and talked about. Um, I, I think the uh, uh, work to keep it up to date by incorporating students in an annual review so that as new material is created, how do we look at that, especially in the Chicago region, uh, as we're seeing health equity pick up and as a research arm in many of our academic institutions. Um, You know, are we really moving the bar, which was one of the the things we talked about in the book to really not just describe the problems, but to actually find solutions, describe solutions, even if they're imperfect solutions, at least describe what's worked, what hasn't worked so we can adjust Mm -hmm. and grow from them in in a dynamic process. Um, And I I think those are some of the uh, important... Oh, the last one is a teaching guide, right? Um, uh, As as, uh, teachers and faculty asked us about how to use this book in their own classroom settings, we wanted to give them some very basic ways of approaching some questions um, so that they could uh, start conversations and discussions yeah. with the book material. Because it's written, some of it's in a very academic style, some of it's you know, community mm-hmm. uh, right. written, um, and the academic ones, uh, you know, they're not the easiest articles to always read. Yeah. Um, so we hope that people would have some access to um, some at least guiding questions to look at the bigger
2: stories that are being told. Yeah. And the other thing that's emerged in some conversations with colleagues is, uh, possibly replicating the model in other places. Mm-hmm. So what does the Baltimore version of this book look like? What does the New York City version? What does the Buenos Aires and Sao Paulo version look like? And so that city level historical review, I think, could hold great value, especially if we can do it across a wide range of places.
4: So in the book you do, of course, cover communities uh, and and um, populations who experience these great health disparities. How would you explain research and why it's important to um, a marginalized community?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I think as I've tried to explain and think about research, because the same question actually happens with medical students and others that don't come from a research background and then think about research with the big capital R research uh, and what it might mean with test tubes and being in a lab and like dealing with uh Uh, cell lines or something Um, and and research is really a way of finding solutions or answers in a very systematic way Uh, and and I think it's a skill set that anybody can use and apply and it's just a matter of how how do we uh, encourage that Um, some of our work that we've been involved with in the center such as uh, the Chicago gun violence research collaborative with the fellows it's really showing you have to co develop um, and build capacity with your communities. So, marginalized communities um, have answers and assets. Um, and if we can encourage people to see the value of what they're bringing into solving their local problems, which they do day in and day out and recognize, and give them the tools to be able to share that, then they're more likely to express their own voice and meaning in what has to be done to help support their community. Um, and it's, it's trying to bring out and train those aspects of research uh, that I think are really important. They're hard, they're not easy, um, but it's a, it's a balance of powers that go on about who controls the idea of generating knowledge and creating new ideas. Um, and, and I think that's within all of us and within all of our communities to be able to do that um, and to recognize we can uh, and offer those solutions.
2: Yeah, and I think that that conversation is so important because it ultimately drives better research, more, more useful research that has actual utility for people. It will be very easy for ourselves and our institutions to continue the old business as usual of uh, isolated research, helicopter research, stuff that wasn't meaningfully engaged, um, with communities, and that's disrespectful and ultimately doesn't generate the kind of answers that anybody needs. Um, so we're committed to doing this in a very humble way, recognizing we don't have all the answers, but answers are created through social action, and social action is created by communication, by networks, and um, by reaching out.
4: Thank you. Another question we have for you is, um, where did you see the greatest health inequities when you started your work, and how did these disparities affect the communities that you serve?
3: Yeah, I think one of our early projects uh, as a center was to get involved with um, developing a community health needs assessment and a framework for that uh, activity for a non profit health system like Rush University Medical Center. Um, and, and what struck and what resonated, uh, good or bad, was essentially a map that was created Uh, by Virginia Commonwealth University, where they were doing this around the country, looking at cities and the transportation lines, and then wherever those stops were occurring on the transit lines, documenting what the uh, life expectancy was for that particular community. Um, And when you saw that map of Chicago and you looked at sort of the neighborhood in Streeterville where we're at right now, uh, as part of say the green line and you follow that out to the west side where rush is located and some of the communities that are just two stops away from us Uh, Life expectancy changes from about 85 uh, to um, 69, um, within less than, you know, four or five stops, uh, two miles away from each other. That understanding of disparity in a very simple diagram uh, of life expectancy um, really resonated not just with me, but others in the community. It was something easier to grasp and to get a handle around. Mm Uh, about why can we have areas that are so close to us um, have a life expectancy similar to developing countries um, and and what's causing that to happen. Um, uh, You know, uh, it's always interesting and intriguing to me about how much students want to do global health activities, um, travel to another country for two weeks or three weeks to be able to offer some services that couldn't be reached in different ways. I can't help but think of myself like I would just wish that same energy would be taken like two blocks away in mm-hmm. some of our communities and make a difference in those spaces. Sure. But there's something that prevents us from doing that. It's the closeness, it's uh, the you know, the, the feeling like we we actually may know some of these people and then their impact on that relationship and we may be more accountable, right? We're not just coming in for two weeks doing something and leaving mm-hmm. and getting a good sense we're doing the right thing. We're gonna to have to maintain relationships for a long time to see some of these changes turn around. Sure. Um, and so that that's some of the the issues as a geriatrician and thinking about life expectancy and mm-hmm. health span that got me interested in some of the ideas.
2: Yeah. And I guess we've seen this from slightly different perspectives. I think when I first came to Chicago at the end of 2010, I was a new parent. I had a, a year and a half year old at the time. Mm-hmm. And um, she had uh, reactive airways, right? And uh, so one of the first studies that really got to me was the asthma dis- disparities in the city, mm-hmm. right? These amazing maps that showed hyper-local differences. And then quickly, I, you know, from, from that, you saw the infant mortality maps, you saw the low birth weight maps, and what really struck me is that this was taken as normal, that this is the way things had to be, that this was natural. And um, it's, uh, of course, a gross pattern of inequality.
4: In these, um, So you've talked about a few of these <coughs> disparities you've observed in, in the communities that you serve. Um, have you seen any improvement on any metric or any sort of um, something you've been monitoring?
2: Yeah, I guess the, the, the brightest... Um, Light of of success, I guess, has come from the the breast cancer work of the Metropolitan Chicago Breast Cancer Task Force, which has detected some small but significant decrease in the black-white disparity in breast cancer in the city of Chicago, um, a a decline that's not seen in other major U.S. cities. So change is definitely possible.
3: Yeah, and we do know overall, I mean, uh, life expectancy as a city over in this last five years has actually improved. Uh, and even some of the neighborhoods next to us uh, are showing some improvements in life expectancy over the, in the new census. But we do have to question and ask ourselves why that's happening. Um, and it may not be anything we are doing technically from um, uh, interventions around health equity and changes. Uh, it may be driven by uh, flight of minority populations from the city. It may be gentrification happening in these communities that we're uh, living in as uh, the city is changing and where it's building and growing and um, some of the west side is experiencing that uh, impact Um, so we just have to be cognizant of uh, it's it's not just the the end goal of you know, um, uh, preventable years of life lost, um, in a community, but it's also how we get there and who gets to go in that pattern mm-hmm. that we have to keep in the back of our mind. And, um, uh, and that takes a lot of being, you know, just cognizant of the potentials for, uh, further harm being done to get to better
2: outcomes rather than benefiting all and how do we approach those and be yeah. just aware, um, yeah. And it raises the need to always be critical even of, of seemingly positive indicators that we want to be, right. we, want, we want to believe. But we always have to dig deeper into the data to see how things are being generated.
4: Right. Sort of like how, oh, you know, tobacco use is down among youth, but you look at the e-cigarette use, that's up. That's so true. sort of like yeah. taken into account. Right. Yeah, yeah. Right. yeah, the whole spectrum.
3: Yeah, yeah, from my perspective, I think what we've witnessed in the city um, around sort of this collaborative action and the growth of organizations such as uh, Alliance for Health Equity, which are bringing, you know, uh, 30 hospitals in the city and their community benefits working together to try to get scale and action Um, our important movements forward similar to West Side United as a way to bring community groups on the west side together with over 450,000 people working with health systems and hospitals together to try to influence the dynamics. We've seen this with uh, the regional equity network which has come through with community members working together in the space. So we've seen this sort of collective action uh, that has led to um, even even government and uh, the recent transitions in the mayor and, and uh, philosophies sort of changing about how we impact the city and that everybody has to benefit from the growth we've been mainly seeing in the center and the commercial areas of the city um, uh, play out. Um, I, I do think we're gonna have to figure out some better solutions about where we go for the next step. We're building the collectivism, we're building the cooperation, Uh, but it's how how do you sustain and find those projects where you know one institution can do it by themselves Mm -hmm. and that they have to work together and share and be willing to move things forward Um, and if we can break that if we can break this idea that it is in our benefit to support our community uh, and be their servants I think we get closer to uh, finding real meaning and relationships Um, I, that last a long time and improving sort of the social capital of the area uh, that we desperately need um, in a competitive world
2: yeah. um, I, I Agreed I think to, to move any of this it, it requires a new kind of collaboration that we haven't had before um, community-driven um, and also um, Outrage right like outrage that, that we've lived with these inequalities for generations that families and communities have been devastated by unnecessary suffering when we have the scientific and medical tools to alleviate that. I've never seen, I bet you will never see a march against infant mortality, right? Like it's just accepted as part and parcel of our city. Um, But unless we have a level of political outrage and collective action against it, those things will always be in the background.
4: You said it's sort of like, yeah we don't operate in a vacuum and sort of these forces are existing in our city and also we as institutions and um, academic um, uh, partners uh, we have an obligation to the community that we live in and to, to advance the betterment and I think it's exactly what this book gets at is that all these things that are um, actions that we can take each of us take um, from a systems level to academic level to individual um, level. I I wanted to shift gears to the um, Center for Community Health Equity, which is a a collaboration between DePaul University and Rush University. Um, Could you, um, in a few sentences, describe what it is and what it aims to do in the next one to two years? Sure, sure.
2: uh, Yeah, well, for us it's it's a, a fantastic platform, right, from which to work together and work in collaboration with partners across the city. The broad aim, the broad vision is that we can do things together that we otherwise wouldn't do by ourselves. So what, what emerges, right, if we get the sociologists and the geriatricians and the clinicians and the nurses working with the geographers? That that mix is really powerful. Um, and so I, I'm eager to see what products will emerge in the coming years from that mix.
3: Yeah, I think, you know, uh, we've been working together for the last five years and um, have been able to build up a track record of uh, you know creating these spaces and opportunities whether it be the book or the health equity and social justice conference that happens in the summer or um, some of the other work we've done in collaboration with the Chicago Department of Public Health uh, uh, to open up the opportunities for collaborations and for each to learn about each other because it's only through the diversity of everybody working together that we'll solve complex, diverse problems that uh, uh, generate these health equity inequities and the outcomes over time. Um, I think in the next one or two years, we're sort of moving from our, like... Um, Toddler years into our adolescent years, and so some of it is the difference in how we work as an adolescent. Uh, maybe we're more rebellious. I don't know. You know, like what whatever happens in that period of time, we take, we can, but we have to continue to take more risks, um, and uh, you know, uh, be able to um, recognize where the needs are and think differently through it. So. You know, I, I really do think we have to become better servants of the communities around us. And, and they may not, not, not the 2.7 million people in Chicago may never hear the word, you know, the Center for Community Health Equity or know it has any impact on their lives. Um, but is there enough of it that some of the ideas that, you know, we're able to bring into the space, the discussions to change the narrative, get accelerated by other groups and then make that change happen? And I, I don't care about recognition for one group or another it is the work of all of us together if we can improve the lives of uh, people in the city and um, and the region uh, and then hopefully be a model internationally is uh, in this work over time um, we can't do it by ourselves, and it's just how do we keep making these small steps to encourage sharing and uh, learning and uh, diversity and inclusion in our
4: work Thank you. Thank you both. Um, so we do have, uh, we end with the last question uh, with all our guests. And we like to ask, uh, what are your book um, or podcast recommendations that you have for our listeners?
2: I feel like, um, I feel old. I don't have any podcast <laughs> recommendations. <laughs> but in terms of books, I would say anything by Paul Farmer, who for me has been a, an intellectual a kind of guiding light.
3: Yeah, I, I read a lot of different things, and I think that's what helps me over time um, to just uh, bring out different ideas and be creative. Uh, but I do think the most recent book that I heard about on NPR and heard the interview was by Ibrahim uh, Ken- Kendi, uh, and it's How to Be an Anti-Racist. Um, and it just brings in, in its own right, um, a, a good conversation and a discussion about how we view uh, racism um, Uh, and uh, and between different groups but also within groups Um, Mm -hmm. and I think he opens up a nice discussion point sometimes uncomfortable sometimes not always in agreement with everything he says but at least he's placed it in a you know a framework that's helpful to at least explore Mm -hmm. uh, and to discuss and to uh, and work through
4: wonderful thank you again we appreciate you guys coming to visit us uh, and talking today at the um, Chat Chat. So we look forward to future collaborations. Right. Thank you for the invite. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank
3: Thank you. you. All
2: right.
0: Thank you for listening to Skinny Trees, Lift Health for All. Please subscribe and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're interested in learning more or getting involved in the Center for Health Equity Transformation, visit our website linked in this episode's description. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions for a future episode, you can contact us at skinnytreespodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com or tweet us at skinnytrees312 or visit our website at skinnytreespodcast.com The views and opinions expressed on
1: this podcast are those of the speakers and authors and do not necessarily reflect or represent the views and opinions of the following entities: National Institutes of Health, The National Cancer Institute, Northwestern University, Northwestern Medicine, Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine, The Robert H. Lurie Comprehensive Cancer Center the Institute for Public Health and Medicine, University of Illinois at Chicago, and Northeastern Illinois University. Skinny Trees is proudly produced and edited in the Center for Health Equity Transformation led by Dr. Melissa Simon at Northwestern University. Dr. Simon is a member of the United States Preventive Services Task Force, USPSTF. This podcast does not necessarily represent the views and policies of the USPSTF. Due to the social nature of this podcast, the content used might be copyrighted by another entity or person. This podcast claims no copyright to said content.